Hello and welcome to the Rethinking Sustainability podcast with Ben, Jazz and Dan. Navigating the complexities of sustainability one pod at a time. I'm Ben McCabe, founder of McCabe & Partners, a purpose-driven executive search and talent advisory. And I'm Josh Grinsing, founder of Recycle App, a recycling software platform that tackles the problem of waste going into the landfill. I had to see, okay, which type of forest gives me the most bang for my buck? Which forest is really the king of carbon in terms of how much carbon I get in order to fund these costs? And undisputedly, the king of carbon in terms of forest is the mangrove forest. Mangrove forests typically are able to sequester four to five times more carbon than conventional terrestrial forests. And the reason for that is, is really because of ecological factors. There's also reporting and rating agencies that will basically come and put effectively like a three-star rating on your project by auditing your project and providing independent analysis. Excellent. And I think a large portion of now carbon projects have some sort of rating, which provide an independent, neutral, science-based analysis of your project so that those who are procuring your carbon credits could, you know, kind of confidence that they're paying for the right thing. Welcome, guys. Welcome to a new episode of Rethinking Sustainability. Ben, how are we? Very well. Good to see you. It's been a while. Been a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. We took a small break from the last episode. Yeah. Um, we've got an interesting... What's been happening, Ben? What's been happening? I want to know before we introduce our lovely guest, what's been happening? Uh, I don't know. It's been a whirlwind couple of weeks for me personally, moving house, living out of boxes. Uh, but I won't bore anyone on the on the painful experience of that. But no, it's um, it's the end of the summer, which is good. A lot of people returning back to the country. It's been yeah, quiet on the roads, which is always quite nice. But now things are going to start to ramp up. And obviously, as we get a little bit closer to COP28, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more activations, more in- experiences. So yeah, no, I'm excited to see what comes over the next few months. And yeah. Yeah, very nice segue, I guess, in today's topic, an area that I didn't really have much insight. I've probably since the last two or three years, the topic of mangroves has sort of really propped up here. I mean, I had no idea about the benefits and I thought they were just like a natural defense barrier. I thought it was just like a nice sort of attraction, but I didn't really sort of really truly understand the benefits and why they're so important until... Well, this is why we've got Mr. Wahid yeah. today, uh, CEO of... Blue, Blue Forest. Forest. Welcome. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. So tell us, Vahid, um, Blue Forest, you are a UAE-based project developer dedicated to protecting and restoring mangroves. What quite simply is, I mean, let's just assume that this is mangrove for dummies, uh, including Jazz and I in that statement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Could you give us a, a broad overview? What took you, what brought you to today in terms of obviously developing Blue Forest? What took you on this journey? And yeah, tell us a bit about, you know, the, the benefits uh, loosely. And I'm, I'm sure there's many. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of questions. Let me unstack them. <laughs> uh, let's start with the fundamentals. What is a mangrove? First of all, mangrove is a tree. It is a species of tree that is uh, indigenous and native to over 100 countries around the world. And as such, it's one of the most representative trees globally. Everywhere from you know Japan to Kuwait to Panama you know, or Kenya, you find this wonderful tree. And the unique thing about this tree is that it is the bridge between the oceans and the coastline. It is a tree that effectively lives in water. Its feet are in water at all times. Mm -hmm. And so it feeds off of a blend of fresh water and salt water and has really 
phenomenal roots that could stretch for kilometers. And as you said, Ben, it's a tree that uh, the more you, you, know, you scrub off the surface, you realize has phenomenal benefits. And you know, we could talk about those benefits. Yeah, definitely. And going back to you, Vahid, in terms of obviously where you got to today with the, um, with the business, what, what sort of, um, have you always been involved in environmental sort of uh, studies or experiences? And what sort of got you to starting and launching Blue Forest, if you can go back just one step? Sure. I approached it uh, from the impact perspective mm-hmm. and from the Africa perspective. Uh, you find mangroves in over about a dozen countries across Africa. And I've been working in Africa for about 20 years. And it, it was always the, from an impact perspective. I started uh, there when I was working for BP on, yeah. the, on the CSR side, bringing solar power to Tuareg uh, nomad tribes in the Saharan desert. Yeah. And then from there, I joined another company called Access. And we continued our focus, bringing solar power to rural communities. And then I started to work in wind power and then shifted from the power sector to more critical infrastructure mm-hmm. like water and education, bringing in access to water, bringing access to education infrastructure to African communities across 20 different countries. And one of the things I was able to see is that these wonderful forests that uh, were there were being cut down. Mm. And this was having a very detrimental impact because it would take forever for these forests to heal themselves and the amount of chopping was only increasing. It was an uneven battle. And the forest would ultimately was bound to lose. I felt bad for the forests. Mm-hmm. Uh, but equally, I, could, I was empathetic towards the communities and why they needed to cut the trees for economic purposes. Yeah. And so the reason why uh, I started Blue Forest was to find ways to bring harmony between the communities and the forests that existed next to them. Yeah. So then from that, then there's clearly maybe an economic perspective from it too. It provides a source of income perhaps for people because before the, the, I guess what you're sort of saying there is, you know, previously, you know, they needed a source of income. So obviously deforestation, there's obviously a, a, a source of income. So what you're saying is maybe through planting and restoring and maintaining uh, mangroves, you can actually benefit from an economic point of view for communities? Absolutely. These are called ecosystem services or ecosystem benefits. Trees provide ecosystem benefits. Some of them provide, a fruit tree will provide fruits and various other benefits like shading and so on. The mangrove tree probably provides more benefits than any other tree. Just to name a few, first of all, it provides coastal protection for communities valued at about $65 billion per year. Wow. Um, It protects the homes of 15 million people. Uh, that live on coastlines and who are sheltered from, you know, dramatic, uh, you know, w- water disruptions, which would destroy their homes, if not for those uh, mangrove forests. And anecdotally, I myself have been into places where there used to be a mangrove forest and, and behind them there were, there were homes. Mm. And then they cut, cut down the trees. And a few years later, you see two things happening. The soil that the trees kept intact started eroding and with the, with the tidal impact, the soil would, was eroding so much that the foundation of the homes was disrupted and the homes basically crashed into the ocean. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I was able to see that myself on multiple, in multiple places. And so it definitely does provide an economic benefit from there. A lot of coastal communities depend on fishing. And uh, not many people know, but 60 to 80% of all fish find their home in mangrove forests. 
because that is where the fish lay their eggs and it serves as a nesting environment right. for fish to pond, to spool and to basically uh, have their early years. And so you take away the mangroves, you take away the home of up to 80% of the world's fish. Wow. <clears throat> the fish disappear, the livelihoods disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a second significant area. And of course you have you know, a lot of birds and, uh, you know, you know, animals that that depend on the mangrove forests to basically survive. You take away those forests, then the biodiversity gets disrupted as well. And so from ecosystem purposes, there are many, many benefits that these traditional, you know, indigenous, you know, native mangrove forests provide yeah. that we need to protect and we need to conserve. Yeah. So, so just look, uh, this is amazing. Obviously, because I have almost zero knowledge of what a mangrove does, or one, not anymore. But one of the things that you mentioned was uh, it protects the coastline, protects, like it's a barrier between tidal waves and coastline. Well, I guess it serves as a, a barrier against natural disasters, tsunami, flood, yeah. whatever. So. Yeah, apologies, I lost my yeah. uh, train of thought there. Yeah, so how does, that, how does it work? Like, why is it a barrier for... From tidal waves and yes. all of this. Does it stop just water from kind of seeping through? Yeah. What is it? Well, it is really like a wall, right? You have the trunks, you have the roots. Mm. These are all outside of the water, right? And so when the tidal disruption hits the coastline, it hits the mango forest first, and the mango forest dilutes the pressure and the force of, oh, wow. of, the, uh, of those mm. waves. So that by the time it hits the coast, coast, it's a lot weaker. Oh, wow. So it is like a shield. It is a shield. So how big do these trees get, though? So I'm assuming because if they, if they, if they take a huge brunt of the force like this, I'm assuming they're... They well, get... for one, they're super dense. Uh, anyone, okay. anyone who's tried to walk through the mangrove forest will tell you, oh, my God, good luck, because it is very dense. The roots are thick. It, it's very compact. And so you can't really get through it, which means the water can't really get through it. And secondly, they can get really tall. Some species, such as the Avicennia marina, can stretch up to 60 meters high. And so that is like yeah, that is like a 10-story high building. building. That's incredible because we probably only, <clears throat> on a day-to-day basis, we, we think obviously in the UAE level, we, we think of mangroves, we think of Abu Dhabi, and they're quite lowly. Whereas obviously that is a far, far bigger yes, different yeah. species, clearly. Yeah, the ones uh, in, that are that are native to the UAE are species that's kind of smaller mm. because uh, because the water is very, very salty in the Gulf. And right. as such, it lends itself to smaller species. Oh, yeah, whereas, you did say um, blend of fresh water and salty water. Right? Yes. So, okay. Whereas in other countries, like such as like, you know, West Africa, you know, I've been to sites in Ivory Coast where these trees just shoot up into the sky. You cannot believe this is a mango, but surely enough, it is. And it is an incredible sight. So it sounds like protection is almost as important than reforestation and planting, because I think the time it takes to plant, and this is one of the criticisms I have in terms of like offsets and planting trees to do good or mitigate any wrongdoing, should we say, on a corporate level, the benefits you don't see for a number of years, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Protection is always better than restoration, mm-hmm. right? Uh, defending a standing forest is always better than cutting it and reforesting it for many, many purposes, both, as you said, because uh, how long it takes for the for the forest to grow, but also the impact it has on biodiversity. What's the average, like, what are you looking at if you want to grow a mangrove tree? Or, yeah, it takes... Well, not even a tree, a forest, I'm assuming it would take ages, but let's go, let's go with a tree for now. 
how long are you looking for if uh, let's go with the smaller ones actually not even the bigger ones let's go to with reach the ma- ones. yeah to reach maturity you're looking at 30 years wow wow 30 years for a tree to reach base, uh, basically a steady level of sequestration uh, flows mm. so by the age of 30 the tree has matured and its you know sequestration capacity has reached kind of a, a kind of has leveled off so that's how long it takes. Wow, yeah. th- 30 years. And if you think in the context of climate change and, you know, achieving certain targets by 2040, 2050, that's, yeah. <clears throat> this is why restoration becomes such a bigger thing as well, right? Because you don't want to be waiting for 30 years for for the new new bunch of trees to kind of grow. Yes, yes. You effectively want to do as much as possible to protect forests. But the issue right now is that it doesn't pay to protect a forest. It pays to cut down the forest. Yeah. Okay. There's more incentives to cut trees than to protect trees because a standing tree doesn't give you any money in your pockets. But if you cut the tree, you've got timber, yeah. you've got fuel wood, you've got charcoal, you've got so Very many clear. other economic yeah. products. Yeah. And this is the problem in the market is that in reality, forests, including mangrove forests, are the lungs of the world. Mm. Like 30, 30% of all the... CO2 that needs to be sequestered in order for us to be able to keep pollution levels or, or emissions levels to 2% or, or 2 degrees come from natural forests. And so a third of the fight depends on protecting these forests, which is you know a no-brainer because you don't necessarily need to spend money to you know plant trees. You just need to protect these trees. But that means creating incentives for people not. To not cut the trees. Well, see, this is this is one of the things that we spoke about on this podcast before, right? There's a there's a massive change in the market now with paper bags, right? Let's jump from plastic bags to paper bags, which is fair enough. But what people don't understand is how much work actually goes in to get that paper bag, right? Which is part of the resources thing that you're talking about. It's easier for me to cut down a tree and not think about it because it's a tree. It's it's far off somewhere in Amazon or in Africa, and I don't really care about it. And this is what people don't understand with the paper bag. This, we talk about this a lot, by the way, just, just as a thing. And this is where my issue with the thing comes in, where people don't realize how much work actually goes into saving and keeping that tree in place as well. And so how you in, how's, how's the incentivizing thing working for you? Like for a blue forest, you guys make sure that the forest the forests are kept or restored properly. How does the incentive thing work in for your yes. business? Yeah, yeah, and and this is this has been an evolutionary process. I've had to look at uh, this and and experiment with different sources of financing and funding. Where do I get the money to help the people, the communities, be incentivized to not cut trees? Mm. And it's it's not straightforward. There's not. The, you know, there's very little funding sources where you say, okay, we'll just pay you to protect the forest. And particularly on a long-term basis, yeah. there are some grants. There are some pockets of money that provide alternative livelihoods. These are little pockets that come and go. And then, so that wasn't very ideal. Then I looked at grants to help people both restore forests and protect forests. And even then, the grants were kind of on like one year, two year, three years. Well, they'll help protect plant. But after three or four years, the grant ends, and mm-hmm. the people still need to feed their children. Yeah, so they'll go cut the tree. Right. And so more recently, I've come up with a new funding pool that I think is very promising. It's a controversial one, but I believe in it. It's the carbon markets. Blue carbon initiatives or? Blue carbon, yeah. yes. And the difference is that, you know, carbon, or if traditional carbon refer, refers to terrestrial forests, 
And if you're doing a mangrove or a marine carbon, it's called blue carbon. And so hence the name Blue Forest. Yeah. The focus of my company is to draw on the carbon resources of mangrove forests so just as for, a tool sorry, just to for listeners, them. again, now, before we go into the carbon uh, aspect of the conversation, can you touch base on just how influential a mangrove tree is to the carbon part of the conversation? Because I know, I know, apparently, I was reading, apparently it's got more, yeah. I think, I saw triple, some yeah, triple, some, triple or something off an Amazon, Amazon forest tree. So if you could just touch quickly on how important a mangrove is according for the carbon part of the conversation, sure. for the climate climate change as well. And before we go into the actual carbon finance part of it. Sure. Well, um, the genesis of my work was really derived by desire to protect forests. And when I realized that you know, the best funding option to, like, to fuel these conservation efforts was the carbon markets, I had to see, okay, which type of forest gives me the most bang for my buck? Which forest is really the king of carbon in terms of how much carbon I could get in order to fund these costs? And you know, undisputedly, the king of carbon in terms of forest is the mango forest. As you said, Jazz, uh, mango forests typically are able to sequester four to five times more carbon than conventional terrestrial forests. Wow. And the reason for that is, is really uh, because of ecological factors. And by virtue of sitting in water, the soil is very rich in carbon. Mm. And in fact, 80% of a mangrove forest's ecosystem carbon reserves are in fact in the soil. Oh, wow. And so the soil underneath the tree is where the bank is, much more so than a terrestrial tree. Mm. And this is the unique feature of the mangrove tree and what gives it its ability to sequester such high volumes of carbon dioxide compared to terrestrial trees. So and that's, sorry, so, I was going to say, because that's where it's super interesting how much they retain, because also that's where, again, going back to the protection of mangroves, surely, like, obviously, if you're chopping down trees, what people don't realize is that carbon that's been stored then gets absolutely straight back out into the atmosphere, which is, I didn't know that until recently. So, so, not, so not only does it act like a barrier for the, for the water part, but also acts as a stoppage for the carbon to be released into the atmosphere. That's right. That's right. And in fact, on a per hectare basis, for example, I'll give you an example of a project that we're doing in Vietnam. In Vietnam, in a, it's, it's a province called Cao Mau. We looked at the carbon stocks of the forests and there is about 150 tons per hectare of carbon being stored in the above ground biomass, which is basically the trunk of the tree. And uh, that is about 150 tons, right? But if you look at the soil organic carbon, that is about 850 tons of a CO2 equivalent per hectare. So there is 85% of the total carbon in the soil and only 15 in the actual tree that you see. And that's just one project. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, fascinating. Because I, I, yeah, I mean, I so, like bringing stats to the table purely because I'm, I'm a bit of a fancist. But I saw that one square mile of a mangrove in itself, just I guess because it helps listeners, and it's a bit like what you do with the re-reports in terms of you break down very well the impact of what you know diverting certain amount of like plastic waste from a landfill, what that actually means tangibly. Uh, I saw that one square mile of a mangrove forest can hold as much CO two as the annual emission of 90,000 90, cars 
So that's when you start to really understand and put it into context, the importance of protection. Yeah. And what that means on a day-to-day level. Yeah. Also, what what it does is it opens up the doors to the murky waters of, of this conversation, yeah. which is <clears throat> how do you balance the good and the bad from the thing, right? Now, from the finance aspect, you've like you said, you've got to make money to a point where you it has to be an incentive for someone to not cut down the tree, right? And now this is where the carbon carbon credits that's that's yeah. that's where otherwise we're relying on governments to do the right thing and provide an income for these communities that need it the most uh, well, I mean, no that's in... not a good thing to <laughs> exactly. depend on some of the governments yeah so do you con- why is it controversial i know you i i literally circle controversial because you said it's a yeah. controversial thing yeah. well because some people feel that these projects are not kind of sufficiently regulated uh, which lends itself to abuse uh, other people say that uh, there's very little um, track record in terms of ensuring that the benefits that are generated through the sale of these credits that are associated with those forests actually go to the you know, local communities, the indigenous communities. Mm. It doesn't trickle down. And these are all legitimate concerns. And what I, my view is like, just because it's not perfect doesn't mean you should walk away. Yeah. My goal and the goal of Blue Forest is to address these challenges head on and to become, you know, a case study of how to do a carbon project properly. Not just again for someone who's listening, someone like you said, dummies, uh, dummies for mangrove, mangroves, right? So why I know because so now we're putting a financial number or a number on the carbon stored in the trees. That's that's how it's being processed. Because uh, I'm for me, it's a bit confusing as to yeah, how. Yeah, I'll it explain works. it to you. So it really is a market. Basically, you have a, on the in the mar- in any market you have supply and demand. Yeah, right? the demand is effectively by countries and companies that are net polluters that are effectively polluting through their supply chain. You're looking at airlines, okay. you're looking at tech companies, and these uh, you know companies or countries want to offset or neutralize their their net negative yeah. impact. And so what they do is they'll cut down internal emissions. Emissions. Yeah. They'll try to like fly less. They'll try to do carpool. They'll promote EVs. But they can only cut emissions to a certain point. Yeah. And if they still aspire to be you know, net neutral in terms of their emissions, they need to basically borrow the emissions yeah. from somewhere else and use those towards their basically, you know, their, their pollution. Mm. And so the carbon markets allows for countries, communities, and companies to generate carbon sequestration volumes, banks, or let's say certificates, and then sell those to those who want to offset their pollution. So for example, you are Facebook and you have realized that as much as you try to you know, become net neutral, you're still emitting about, let's say a million tons of CO2. So then you'll go to a developer and you know, let's say, let's say, you know, let's call it uh, Brazil. And you say, I noticed that you're basically protecting a forest or planting trees and you're going to be, you know, emitting a million tons Mm. or sequestering a million tons of CO2 over the next five years. How about if you sell me those credits of emission sequestration and then I account for those towards my, my pollution? Yeah. So that you basically neutralizing your position. So you've paid money to this 
country. So you said Brazil. So we've paid money to whoever, whoever's managing this. We, me as Facebook or whoever, I've paid Brazil the money saying, hey, listen, use this money for your communities, for, for whatever, for, yeah. to grow more trees. But essentially what you're doing is now you own that, the number of trees that will equate to a million million tons of carbon. Yeah. So that's essentially how it works. Yeah, you What's own a, the carbon rights. You don't own the, the forest. You own the carbon, the carbon rights. rights. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's in your best interest to keep make to make sure that those trees keep growing, keep keep getting the best care, so that you can keep the word you use with sequester yeah. uh, your your emissions. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so, what happens? Uh, let's say, you know, the developer ABC will effectively do three things. First of all, they engage with the community, and they will either protect the forest, which is effectively a forest conservation project or they will restore a project which is you know a forest restoration mm. project and they will then have to uh, demonstrate and uh, that this work has been done on a scientific basis and they will have auditors come in yeah. and vet their work in a very you know a very methodical way and then they will then be able to register those credits and get effectively a certificate for the volume of co2 that has been sequestered once they have that certificate, they can then sell it for the, the volume that has been historically uh, sequestered. Oof, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, the controversy as you describe it, obviously, is one, you know, the financing and, and regulation. But I guess people often see it as like a very quick way to offset and look to be doing good. But I think as long as, you know, there's checks and balances in place, you know, because I know that Apple and Nestle and big corporations are doing this. And as you say, you know, it's difficult. You know, you can put in all of these checks and balances and try and offset and in, and put insets in place. But I guess it's a it's still providing a, a benefit in terms of providing communities a yeah. source of income. It's acting, it's protecting nature. But as long as, you know, people aren't continuing to grow, scale up their operations, continue to, you know, not mitigate the sort of bad that they may be doing in their operations. And I only see it as a good thing. And you know, year on year you should see the sort of insets being put in place while you're still investing on the offsets. And that's where I think it's an unfair one for people to naturally just criticize, oh, that's just, you know, your, your well, buying credits and turning a blind I was, eye. I was going to do that. I, so I, so I was going to do this. Right? So I, this is, this is where my favorite part of the podcast comes in, right? The, I love the, the debunking, the greenwashing aspect of it, right? Because this, because with sustainability, we've seen a lot of greenwashing that comes in. Now, my concern, at least from what I've, what I've understood is how do you navigate that conversation where, I'm going to carry on doing the things that I know cause damage to the environment, but I have sequestered or I work with restoration of a forest or yeah. how does that work? Because, because the word offset generally, now I understand in, you know, when you work with someone, obviously you, you would have these kind of worked out anywhere in your system, but from a, from someone who doesn't know anything about this, that becomes a massive concern. I'd right? be like, oh, they've grown million trees, but they also keep doing this on the other hand, but, oh, but we've offset this. How do you navigate that conversation? Yes. Well, I think that um, it's it's like in, it's like a diet of solutions. You you need a diversity of solutions. Uh, you know, you need to demonstrate uh, discipline in terms of your your emissions, whether you're a company or country. You need to demonstrate that you're taking steps to become more environmentally responsible. You know, you need to pollute less. You need to be mindful of your carbon footprint. But there's only so much you could do because, as you said, we still have to move around. We still have to consume. And the carbon markets really allows you to both responsibly you know, balance your pollution and, and, and more importantly, as Ben said, you know, provide much needed financing to 
communities largely in developing countries to uh, incentivize them to protect the forests. Mm. That is a crucial part that often gets underappreciated is like, how do you incentivize uh, communities in you know, the global south to not cut their trees? Because if they cut the trees, not only they suffer, the planet suffers. Yeah. And so the carbon markets allows for equitable transfer of funds between developed countries and the global south. But, um, that's, that's, that's brilliant. But again, just this is from my personal thing as well, right? When we use the word global, global north is generally the biggest contributor to waste in general, right? We, we have better systems in place, obviously, to manage some of the waste that comes through. Uh, but majority of the waste that ends up in the global south comes from, yes. from the global north, right? Sure. It's pushed down, right? So now, shouldn't the owners fall on the global north as well to be a part of the tree, the tree restoration or the tree growth? Of course. Part? But how? Yeah. How do you so this is, No, but this is where I was going to come to. This was my question is, where do you think or what do you think we could possibly do to kind of navigate that balance or to minimize that bal- uh, the disparity? Yeah, I mean... It's a, it's a big question. Right? Yeah. Look, it's a, it's a tricky question as well because I was just trying to think how can you balance the, the disparity? Yeah, and you have to basically... We focus on the micro level. We try to encourage consumers to ask questions of the, the, the suppliers. To say, you know, how are you offsetting your carbon footprint? What are you doing like to, to minimize your pollution? Yeah. What are you doing to balance your emissions. You put pressure on those companies. I mean, the Fortune 500 companies, but then things like that, have trillions of dollars of, uh, of funding available that they could put towards uh, reforestation and forest conservation efforts around the world. And so by, you know, those are effectively, in my view, low-hanging fruits, pushing companies to, to be accountable for their emissions, for the pollutions. Amazon is one of the largest polluters in the world, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Amazon, you know, should really be held more accountable for their missions and and really commit more towards reforestation efforts yeah. around the world yeah. so as to offset their global emissions. And I so, think that's really what we're trying to push for. So what I like about that, it's not just offset for the sake of offsetting because we can, yeah. right? It's It's a balance, right? So you can offset, yes, but more importantly, reduce before it comes to that stage, reduce your, your ha- like, change your habits and then offset whatever is the remaining part yes, of the thing, right? Exactly. That's, see that, there you go. That's that's more of what we want to hear on this podcast, right? Like rather than, hey, listen, let's just go plant trees. We want a proper description of why you should be doing this in the first place. And I love the... Yeah. Love and the if thing. you're going to plant a tree, you want to plant a mangrove tree, right. both because of the community benefits by enhancing fisheries, by protecting coastal communities, by protecting against future uh, tidal disruptions and by sequestering carbon from the air, which ha- enables us to have a healthier planet. Okay. I, I, before, there was, there was a thing that you mentioned earlier as well, um, specific with companies getting that particular amount of trees and so on. How do you track that? How do you know? So if I want to plant a tree, yeah, the, well, yeah, it's it's luckily technology has has improved leaps and bounds. There's now many many companies that use, um, you know, I've seen like drone technology. There's drone technology. Yeah. There's high okay. resolution satellite imagery. Where now, and there's also reporting and rating agencies that will basically come and put effectively like a three star rating on your project okay. by auditing your project and providing independent analysis. Excellent. And I think a large portion of now carbon projects have some sort of rating, which provide an independent, neutral, science-based analysis of your project so that those who are procuring 
your karma credits could, you know, kind of confidence that they're paying for the right thing. I like the neutral path. Eh? That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a good way of managing any sort of... Yeah, and it's good that it's more regulated and there's a proper tracking system. You say there was obviously like this three-star rating. It's not a case of planetary, forget yeah. about it, I've done my bit, is actually being held accountable for it. So it yeah. takes away that sort of, you know, demystification, I yeah. guess. It really is. And look, like for me and Blue Forest, you know, I'm putting everything on this. Like I'm putting everything on, you know, on the on the table. Um, the company has has just about a year and a half old. We started in January 2022. And uh, I basically spent everything I've had on, on getting the project to where it is, uh, the company to where it is, because I believe in the future of this, because there's no alternatives in, from what I can see today to finance and to fund forest conservation, which is critical to our planet. And yes, the carbon market is, is not perfect, but my hunch, my intuition tells me that we could fix this. And once we fix this, then you have a very transparent, equitable marketplace for those who are polluting to transact with those who are protecting and really build a harmony so that we could we could stand a chance to saving our planet. And if I get this wrong, of course, it's going to be terrible because everything <laughs> I've owned have <laughs> gone to waste. So I'm very vested in this. And this is what keeps me laser focused on this and, and making sure that the projects that we build, whether it's in Asia or in Africa, like places like Mozambique, Amazing. we do a really good job so that we build a strong foundation so that we can stand behind our project, stand behind our carbon credits and make sure that there is a, a, a strong so demand just, for those. Just uh, love the story of putting everything in there. I think, you know, when you go all in on something, there's clear, you have a clear path as to how you want to achieve things. So there was one thing that you mentioned, sorry, I'm p- picking up on a couple of things that you said. You said something about carbon, having a carbon marketplace, which is manageable and neutral of anything, right? So what's the next step to get to that stage? Right? What's, what's holding us back when it comes to the carbon, carbon, cal- carbon aspect of the conversation? Because like you said, there's so much, so much noise in the market when you go, you don't know what you're supposed to believe. So from, from someone who's been working in the market, who works with the forest, where do you think we stand now when it comes to carbon in general? And what, what are we looking for? What kind of noise do we cancel out for the next, let's say, couple of years when it comes to carbon conversations? Yes. So the the reality is that this is a global market and you have very different types of uh, uh, players. You have communities who have projects. You've got companies who are in there. You've got entire countries. And then you have to basically harmonize all these different discussions, contracts, uh, terms, standards, which is very complex because you're dealing with different layers of players across, you know, a hundred different countries. The United Nations through the Paris Agreement and Article 6 has stepped forward and provided some uh, regulations that is moving forward. Mm. And I think as time goes, uh, people will hover and gravitate towards a set of best practices and high integrity standards that will then become a benchmark for the market. That's the key, right? The benchmarking part of it. That would be critical to having a one solution kind of thing. Yeah. Where, and like, some of the projects you've got on at the moment, Vahid, you, I think you mentioned Vietnam is something that's yeah. ongoing. Are you, are you doing anything on a local level or is it mainly international? Well, yes. we're uh, Blue Forest is active in eight countries across the Middle East, Africa and Asia. Uh, in the Middle East, we're, 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 we've done work uh, in the UAE for both on the company side, such as like Deloitte and, you know, um, Speedo and several others, such as, such as Amazon. And that work is kind of on a more like a local level. 
and in in Saudi Arabia, we're looking to restore you know, five thousand hectares of degraded mangroves in partnership with our local partner there in Abatic over the next uh, three to five years. Excellent. So that's very exciting. Uh, further on, we're, we're very active in Africa in places like uh, Tanzania, Mozambique, Ivory Coast, where we're looking to uh, collectively between them, there's about 150,000 hectares of land that we're going to be restoring. So just just for anyone listening, uh, give me a rough ballpark figure yeah. as to what 150,000 yeah. hectares So means. Uh, think of, let's say, Singapore. Singapore is about 71,000 hectares. So the, the land, whole country, the whole country. Wow. So the current, the projects so that we have, Singapore's? yeah, that a startup out of Dubai is trying to manage. You have no idea the the amount of stress and complexities that are involved, particularly when you go to the local level. Yeah. When you basically zoom in to the one hectare, which itself is like two football pitches, and you multiply that by, you know, that's a lot you, of manpower. It's a lot of manpower, and and it's very long. Like for example, if, in one project in just Mozambique. On the coastline, if you start from the northernmost point in Pebane and you drive down all the way to uh, Dondo, you, it's basically the same distance as getting into a car in London and driving all the way down to Rome. Wow, that's incredible. And, and that is just one project. Mm. That's one project. So that's huge. The scales are astronomical but that's that's see that's the amazing part right so now what it does is if anyone's listening it gives you an idea of how many jobs you're opening up in exactly, the yeah. it's in not the community a two, it's aspect it's not a two-man woman job yeah you know? yeah yeah it's not it's not just hey listen uh call your gardener be like listen just go check go check yeah, the trees a- out ai ain't gonna fix that either yeah, AI yeah. is not gonna fix that there's a lot of capacity building yeah. a lot of training because these are very like low-skill low-income communities you know and to basically teach them how to methodically, scientifically use the right species, the right speeds at the right density, looking after them, making sure they grow, making sure there's no threats. It's a huge amount of work, just in terms of capacity building and community awareness. Mm. And there's like, as you said, uh, Jazz, there's like over, just on one of our projects, we're gonna have to hire over a thousand people just for one project. And it's incredible the, the impact it's gonna have. And so for me, you know, I'm really excited about the impact I'll be able to deliver. Yeah. And I try not to get, you know, you know, overwhelmed because to have that impact, of course, you have to, you have to allocate resources and funds. And the, one of the other challenges of the market is that all the funds become available when you've actually, you know, generated the credits. But between now and then, it's a two-year process and involves millions of dollars. Yeah. And to get those millions of dollars in the early stage, like with any startup, is very, very challenging. Yeah. So I'm guessing a lot of the policymakers need to be on on this as well because you're not just tackling the environmental aspect of it, which is what you touched on earlier. Environmental, but also the social element. So, so, yeah, 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 like it's the whole. Wow, that's amazing. That's uh, yeah. This is where <clears throat> clearly there's obviously there's a gap there from a funding perspective. It's like chicken and the egg. You know, you need you you're providing the infrastructure, you're doing the good, but then there's this sort of temporary stopgap, I guess, in terms of the funding element, which access to funds right now isn't super easy. Um, interest rates are pretty high, but this is where there should be better offsets. Uh, no pun intended, obviously, for businesses <laughs> that are doing good uh, to make it more equitable, and and you know, for businesses that are serving a real high social environmental purpose, should be uh, a lot more equitable. But um. That's phenomenal. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very insightful. I, it's like a mini MBA in itself. I was going to say, I, was I will write say, a book about this. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I do have last couple of questions on this part of the thing as well, right? 
from a climate change perspective, uh, so if someone's listening, obviously now I know because you've told me all of this, like someone's listening, uh, could you mention something about blend of fresh water and salt water in the start, right? So how, how important is the heat aspect of it? Because as our temperatures rise, ice, icebergs melt, right? And there's more fresh water. I'm guessing that that's going to impact your mangrove situation as well. Right? Well, um, in, in theory, yes. But in reality... The mangroves typically grow in tropical countries okay. that are not far from the, the equator. So by the time either of those icebergs melt and by, before they get even close to the equator, it's all salt water. All salt water. And what is happening is that um, it, what it is, the impact though is rising sea levels. Mm. What, that is the hidden uh, explosion that's going to hit everyone is rising sea levels. And temperature as well, maybe? Well, the temperatures is causing, as Jan said, the, the icebergs to melt, which mm. is rising. And I've seen this where like the standing force is no longer threatened by just humans cutting it down. The standing force are basically being crippled and drowned by this rising sea levels, which is eroding the soil and basically pulling in the trees into the sea. It's very, very visible. And I'm like, holy shit, this is happening. Mm. It's happening. People don't talk about it, but it's happening. You see it in Asia. You're going to see it in Africa. So and you, the strength of the soil is what diminishes because because of the yes because of the strength of the water the, the soil goes weaker and then the trees get pulled out. Is that's generally yeah. that's right. The pressure and right. the level basically is what causes it. Because when you're along the equator in the tropics, you you depend on tidal water, and so at some point the basically the water levels are low and some points are high, but with rising sea levels, it's more and more high, which effectively is not helpful because mm. you need that balance of low tide and high tide. Wow. Yeah, because we, we, we are a big uh, thing here about climate naysayers versus climate well, doomsayers, right? If that's the word you want to use. It's essentially, we've said this, where people that uh, deny climate change are almost as bad as people that say climate change is going to end the world. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, just massive disparity in that conversation but from from what you are saying right now it it seems almost like a like we can grow as many trees as possible but we also need to make sure that we stop heating our planet which is what you were talking about the balance part of the conversation yeah, absolutely as i mentioned trees are only one third of the equation they're only one third of the solution reducing our emissions reducing reducing co2 emissions is critical and we have to look at the cement industry the automotive industry the airline industry and look at where there could be improvements so okay. as to reduce those emissions because that's effectively two-thirds of the solution. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. It's like uh, living on a fast food junk diet at McDonald's and hitting the treadmill every day. Something's going to give one day. <laughs> yeah. Not the treadmill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have three kids of three boys and, you know, eventually they're going to have families of their own and I worry for their children. Mm. I, I mean, you look at, look at what the summer that we had, whether yeah. you're, you're in Greece or Georgia, you know, it's just hell yeah. and it's only going to get worse. This and is so it. by time our grandchildren come around, they're going to be faced with a very difficult, yeah. you know, very difficult planet. Yeah, this is what makes me uh, uneasy at night and definitely give me more gray hair. And I think this is probably where you got to in life. And I'm, I'm sure having worked for BP for a number of years, starting a family, you start to, you, I'm sure that empathy was always there. I'm not denying that, but you start to think about, you know, life Absolutely. very differently. Yeah, the re the, the, what really caused me to leave Big Oil and to really focus on renewable energy was two things. It was when I had my first son, Cyrus. And at the same time, where there was the Gulf of Mexico disaster, where, you know, mm. the, the Deepwater Horizon platform exploded and just created havoc on the marine ecosystem. I felt 
I don't want to be part of the story. I want to be part of the solution. And that's when I shifted into renewable energy and focused entirely on, uh, on finding a solution. And I think that's what we all have to do. We have to realize that if not for ourselves, for our children's sake, we yeah. have it upon ourselves to make drastic decisions today. Totally agree. Feels like a very nice way to uh, close the episode. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I, that was brilliant. I know you said you had a few more questions. No, no, already, I, yeah. it's very rare that it happens that I'm uh, left speechless. Very rare. Yeah. Uh, but now I was just, I was just, I don't know if you guys watched Lord of the Rings, but there's a, there's a, there's a scene in, in the two towers where, where the trees are fighting water, basically. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's just, that's what I thought of when you said how important mangroves are to, to nature itself, right? And, yeah. um, and, and for the listeners that are in the UAE, I encourage you to really uh, embrace the mangroves that are within this country itself. You, as you mentioned, uh, you have uh, the mangroves in Abu Dhabi. Even more lush are the mangroves are in Ajman, mm. Azora National Park. Beautiful. You know, working with people like uh, Companies for Good or Quest for Adventure, you have easy access to these mangroves. It's, it's a, D- does Dubai not have? Uh... Dubai does not have. Okay. Dubai does not. Do, do, do you have inland? a little bit? Do inland? Uh, do you have a little bit as you drive up the the uh, the, the 66 Alain Road? Okay. Um, but very little. Most, 90% of the country's mangroves are in the Emirate no. of Abu Dhabi. Okay. Okay. Last question before we obviously, how is cooling affected by the trees? Right? Like, is it cooler when, when there are more trees Absolutely, around? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it is an entire ecosystem in itself. Uh, when you go to uh, Al Jubail National Park or Al Zora National Park in Ajman, in, even in summer, even today, if you go and you're there walking through the forest, it's much cooler. Lovely. Because it's, it's when the, the, the trees capture the moisture and the humidity in such a way that it enables for it to be a lot less hot, both through the shading, but also through the, the CO2 sequestration strength of these trees, you create a much more enjoyable experience. That's Amazing. why it's so great to be in forests. And that's why you know, I love about my job is that it gets me to beautiful forests around the world. And I love it. Amazing. Super jealous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could do with some cooling right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, been, it's been a warm, uh, warm room today. Um, Vahid, uh, thank you so much for all the uh, insights. Super useful. Um, really, really good luck with everything with Blue Forest. Uh, the world definitely needs more impact-driven businesses like yours. So keep up the uh, solid work on purpose. And yeah, thank you so much for your time and insights. Also, um, if you, any, you know, if anyone wants to reach out, what are the best platforms to? Sure. Uh, we uh, we have our contact information on our website, which is blueforest.co. And of course, we're active on LinkedIn. So you can get in touch with us through Blue, Blue Forest on LinkedIn. So blueforest.co, blueforest.carbon offsets, is that what it, <laughs> what it stands for? No, company. What? I'm sorry, I was just making a joke, sorry. Yeah, but it's true. It yeah, could be. You it could be, be yeah. that, right? Yeah, it could be, that's clever. Uh, yep. If you use it for marketing purposes... Uh, it's fine. I don't need any credit, right? Okay. Well, there are businesses now with their website .eco. Uh, there's lots of these little places yeah. now. Uh, so you, you can, you're not far off. Yeah. yeah but again, thank you so much, Wade. Thank you yes, so much. Thank Hopefully, you for having me. Uh, people that are listening uh, actually got learned something like, I think like we so. did. Yeah, 100%. Um, again, yeah. thank you so much for, for another episode. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Sustainability podcast. Drop a follow to never miss an episode. For more information on ourselves, there's a link in the show notes. See you next time. 